Okay, so this is our Simon Don reading group. Um, continuing our reading of imagination and invention, we're at the bottom of page 123 of the translation for those following along. Um, so, uh, yeah, we're still in part three um, of the book. Uh, we're in section B of that part, and um, I believe subsection three of that section. Um, so we're still talking about different different kinds of memory images uh, and like what role these images play in our intellectual life. Uh, so we looked at um, this sort of typology of memory images. Um, so different people would have different uh, sort of types of images in terms of which sense the images correspond to. So some people would have a visual memory or a predominantly visual memory. They would uh, sort of uh, visual images would be the most powerful, the most uh, precise form of images that they experience, uh, whereas other people would have uh, primarily auditory images, so they would have um, memories of sounds uh, would be predominant in their sort of mental life. Uh, so we went through a few different types, um, and then we looked at the um, mixed type, um, which would be sort of a combination of different types. Um, but then after this typology bit, we look at uh, the question, or, or Simon don't raises the question, whether memory images are generic or particular. Um, and this is a question that, um, so it, it's on the one hand, it's just a purely sort of psychological question, um, like what is it, what properties do mental images have in the psychological life of uh, human beings? Um, but it's also tied up with questions about um, theory of knowledge, because you have alternate Counts of how knowledge comes about. Um, uh, either you have sort of uh, an empiricist kind of account where you say that you have all these particular images and there's a sort of continuity between um, a particular image and um, abstract knowledge or intellectual knowledge. So um, this account has a sort of summation or averaging um, explanation of how we come to have a, a, a concept. So um, you observe um, a pine tree uh, one day, uh, the next day you observe another pine tree and so on. You, you observe 20 or 100 pine trees and these images, uh, these particular images um, sort of combine with each other. They're added together or averaged out or some sort of um, similar type of physical type process or quasi-physical process um, occurs that results in uh, a generic image of a pine tree. Um, uh, so there's a, a continuity between the particular image that you see on one particular occasion and the general concept of a pine tree. Uh, so that's the sort of empiricist perspective on uh, theory of knowledge. Uh, and then the alternate perspective is a kind of rationalist or, or I assume don't call it an idealist um, perspective on theory of knowledge, um, which holds that we there's a discontinuity between the particular images and the general concepts or uh, knowledge in general. So this, um, we can think primarily here of Descartes and, and this distinction between um, um, uh, the ideas that we receive from experience. So, you know, the, the pine trees that we observe, for example, and then these innate ideas that we, we don't receive through experience that we, um, in some somewhat mysterious way, we have before we actually experience anything. So ideas of number, um, extension and so on. These are ideas that we don't um, uh, sort of abstract from experience or, you know, learn to uh, 
we don't learn these concepts by you know observing a bunch of entities that have these properties. We have to have these ideas first before we can actually um, have any experience of of these entities at all. Um, so, and then one uh, maybe surprising bit is that um, Simondo identifies Barclay as um, falling under this rationalist side as, or idealist side as opposed to the empiricist side. Uh, so in most histories of philosophy, Barclay is identified as an empiricist. Um, but uh, for the purposes of this classification, um, what's important here is that Barclay denies that there's any such thing as a, a general idea. Um, so he says, if you imagine a man, you have to imagine um, like um, your your image of a man has to be either a tall man or a short man, uh, you know, uh, with a certain hair color, a certain, um, you know, shape of nose and whatever. Every um, particular of that image has to be determinate. Uh, and he denies that there's such a thing as a as an abstract concept of man that would be neither short nor tall, you know, neither brown or blonde hair or whatever. All of these different um, properties would be in, undetermined in this image. He, he denies that there's any such image. Um, and and so what uh, Barclay is essentially stating here is that there's a, a gap between our um, uh, between how these uh, particular images operate in our mental life and then our capacity to use uh, words for general concepts, uh, a word like man and so on. Um, so these have only a linguistic existence. There's only um, there's a word man that um, we can apply to, you know, our particular images of men, but there's no sort of um, mental concept of man in general. Um, so, uh, yeah, so that's the bit about um, the sort of empiricist versus idealist um, positions in theory of knowledge. And then, uh, so Simon Don, as he typically does, he wants to sort of identify what is... Um, valid about each of these modes of reasoning or each of these different theories of knowledge. He's not going to say that one is correct and the other is incorrect. He's, he wants to find out what sort of phenomena each one has um, grasped and, and then sort of identify um, uh, how these two sort of opposed positions arise out of something more fundamental. Uh, and so he looks at um, the empiricist uh, position, this uh, sort of gradual or continuous development of general ideas out of uh, particular images. He identifies this, or he um, sees this as corresponding to the um, development of living beings. Uh, so um, in the same way that um, uh, an evolutionary lineage arises through branching, and um, uh, you know there, there's a, um, a family and a genus and a species and so on, um, our ideas in the same way formed by branching. So you might, um, as an infant, might sort of form the concept of a tree first, um, and then uh, through, you know, learning more about different types of trees or observing different types of trees and what properties these different uh, trees have uh, comes to recognize, say, I don't know, deciduous versus uh, coniferous trees, um, you know, whether they actually use those uh, precise words or not, but like, you know, identifying two different types of trees and then maybe individual uh, genera of trees and so on. Um, so our development of concepts, our acquisition of concepts in our lifespan mirrors in some sense the evolutionary development of these uh, living beings that we we sort of group beings in terms of uh, families or um, lineages uh, 
that that correspond um, to the evolutionary development over time of these uh, populations. And uh, and this is actually something that well, Simon doesn't mention this, but um, just sort of incidentally that um, there's been uh, a fair amount of research by anthropologists into what's known as uh, ethnobiology. Um, so you have like ethnobotany, ethnozoology, so, um, and so on. Um, and so this is looking at the different um, classifications of living beings that different um, people around the world have used. Um, uh, and often it turns out that um, uh, people in a particular, like, I don't know, New Guinea or a particular place um, identify um, very similar categories of um of living beings as a uh, contemporary scientific categorization that they, um, you know, they, they group the beings into um, species and genera, et cetera, that, that are fairly similar to the ones that are used by, um, you know, contemporary Western scientists uh, looking at these, uh, at these living beings. So um, obviously um, the, you know, traditional knowledge of people living in these areas is not, um, you know the the sort of social structure in which that knowledge arises is very different from Western scientific um, uh, knowledge production, but uh, there's a sort of convergence in terms of the um, hierarchy of concepts, the taxonomy of living beings that they uh, arrive at, which is uh, maybe some evidence for Simon Don's point here that um, that uh, you know there's a, a sort of parallelism between the development of concepts in a human lifespan and uh, um, the uh, evolutionary development of uh, living beings. And then he points out that uh, this sort of classificatory knowledge uh, applies well in the case of living beings because of this sort of branching structure of evolution, but it applies much less well to um, <clears throat> phenomena like um, geological phenomena, uh, because here you don't have this sort of branching of populations. You instead have, uh, for example, metamorphic pro uh, processes. So a certain type of stone can turn into a different type of stone under particular temperature and uh, pressure, et cetera, conditions. Um, and uh, so instead of having like a, a tree structure and you have sort of a network structure where, you know, one uh, species can turn into a different species, for, for example. Uh, and this, uh, again, in biology is also a, a sort of conceptual problem in the case of classifying uh, bacteria species, because you have, in the case of bacteria, there's uh, what's known as lateral gene transfer, uh, meaning that bacteria can exchange genetic material um, with each other. And so instead of having like a branching hierarchy of, um, of you know, uh, family and genera, species, etc., um, you have this sort of network structure where genes sort of pass, you know, from one direction to the other through these, uh, you know, across branches of the, of the hierarchy. So that's sort of, I think, as far as I know, a, a sort of open problem of how exactly to deal with this in biology, um, you know, in, in the study of bacteria. Uh, so again, that's sort of Simon Don's uh, uh, attempts to, um, to to identify which aspect of the world this classificatory uh, thinking is, um, is grasping correctly. Um, so this branching taxonomy of evolutionary lineages um, and then sort of relativizing it. So to identify that, you know, it's, it's very effective at one type of knowledge production, but then in other areas of knowledge, it's much less effective. Uh, and so we're going to look at other um, types of reasoning and formation of concepts and how, um, you know, where 
where these other types of knowledge production are effective. That's what we're going to look at, um, uh, I think, the rest of, uh, of this section today. Okay, um, so let's start with the text. Um, if I can get a volunteer to read from bottom of 123. Uh, I can read. Do you know where um, are we at this? We should also know. Um, I think we may have read that. I think we're at finally we anticipate. Okay. Finally, we can anticipate the processes for the saturation of the image and the formation of the symbol on the basis of this conception of the constitution of the memory image, which proceeds by branching by the branching out of successive imprints from a common and primitive trunk, which ultimately stems from the first imprint that founded the class. A quote-unquote tree of memory images that developed from a first imprint tends to become a symbol when the opposite tendencies of subsequent imprints bring the primitively asymmetrical structure, the bad mother as aberrant case of the primitive mother, into a state of symmetry in which the image is a coupling of the incompatible qualities which are nonetheless linked together, the mother that is both good and bad, nurturing and possessive, source of life and threat of absorption, negating the child individual. This coupling of incompatible yet linked qualities expresses the state of supersaturation of the memory image, a metastable state that is the necessary condition for invention, that is, for a structural change restoring compatibility within a new system. The image having become a symbol condenses a contradictory experience. It presents itself in this form with the opacity of a real object that is irreducible to any quote-unquote attitude of consciousness and partially refractory even to an elucidation by consciousness. The symbol image yokes the subject to events of which it retains a complex memory and makes the subject depend on these events of which it preserves a real and representative fragment that is the equivalent to the object as concrete and to the enveloping situations. Conversely, the symbol opens a path towards the object in the sense that it is a means for conjuring it, restoring it out of traces. And traces are effective in conjuring the object when all the various aspects of the object are simultaneously represented within the imprinting system concerning that object with an inner equilibrium that constitutes both the coherence and at the same time the tension of the system. Thus, in order for the memory image to evolve to the point of becoming a symbol, it must condense an intense and heightened experience energetically tying the living being to its milieu, and it must develop through a series of qualitatively different and successive imprints irreducible to one another. It is the heterogeneity of imprints linked to a, linked to a same source that gives to the symbol its inner tension and renders it different from a totalization comparable to that of a composite portrait. I am not arguing that the hypothesis of the constitution of generic images through a process of totalization does not account for a number of processes. Totalization may occur in cases where where no imprinting exists, that is, in cases where the acquisition of memories takes place through relatively weak motivations and remains close to the functioning of immediate memory. However, distant memories that are strongly emotionally heightened, but also relatively information poor, do not wait for all the successive and par partial snapshots to take place before finding their organization. To extend this photographic metaphor, we might say that the action of the action of the developer occurs after each contribution of experience and that memory, rather than remaining in a state of latent organization until the series end, is corrected and amended with each new contribution of an intense experience and is supercharged by 
successive imprints that consequently form a series in which new contributions may clash with older contributions without erasing them. So yeah, this is this is a very interesting couple of paragraphs, and this seems like um, maybe the most uh, direct reference to Simon Doan's theory of ontogenesis, maybe, that we've encountered so far in the book, although I may be misremembering. Um, but this idea that a memory image can become, or can rise to this, I guess, threshold of a symbol image when you have a metastable disparation of uh, at least partially contradictory images of the same object, uh, which contradiction is, he suggests here, is resolved or um, encompassed in, like, encompassed in a higher dimension and in invention. Uh, this sounds a lot like, you know, the, for instance, the uh, genesis of um, three dimensional vision out of monocular retinal images. Uh, she gives them as, as an example of individuation in uh, part one of individuation. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, we'll see more about, like, he, he's sort of transitioning now from the memory image to the symbol um, of a particular type of image, uh, which is the subject of the, the next part, uh, part C of this, or uh, section C of this part. Um, so yeah, he, he talks about how, um, it's interesting here that he talks about contradiction because in other, in individuation, he um, um, denies, like he, when he sort of differentiates his account of ontogenesis from uh, what he takes the dialectical account to be, he denies that um, contradiction is sort of the the core of um, of uh, this differentiation that bring that is the precondition for ontogenesis. Um, so he like in in the case of disparation of of retinal images, he, um, he of course there's no like contradiction between two retinal images in in a logical sense. They're just two um, light patterns that are different from each other. Um, but uh, uh, so that if we take that, that disparation as the model, then we would say that contradiction is not um, sort of uh, the motor of this process of ontogenesis. Um, but here he explicitly does mention contradiction, you know, the mother as both good mother and bad mother at the same time, or as containing both aspects at the same time. Um, uh, so, yeah, maybe this, I don't know, this might be a little bit more on the side of uh, the dialectical aspect of Simon Don that we've identified in a few cases where he, um, even though he explicitly sort of denies that what he's doing is dialectics, there are you know passages that seem much more dialectical. Um, uh, so maybe this is one that we could sort of add to that um, column on the chart. Um, and uh, yeah, so he, again, he's identifying, um, he, so he said that this process of, um, um, you know, formation of a symbol is distinct from the process of uh, forming a general image through something like a composite uh, photograph. So this is the the first case that I mentioned in a, in the summary at the beginning, um, the sort of empiricist case that involves a continuity between the particular image and the general uh, general idea. Um, so he doesn't deny that that you know is uh, a possible way of forming a concept, but he's distinguishing this process of forming a symbol from that process, um, he, he thinks that this is a, a more particular, um, the symbol formation is something different and, um, uh, you know, somewhat uh, more complicated than this sort of basic 
formation of a general idea by summation or um, averaging. Uh, and then he gives this somewhat obscure um, metaphor uh, in terms of photography. So he says, so this composite photograph metaphor, um, so this idea that the formation of general ideas is comparable to a composite photograph, he says, if we, if we want to sort of keep this image of photography, um, we would have to take it that uh, in the formation of a symbol, instead of having just a bunch of, you know, images on a plate that average out or, or you know, sum together to form a composite image, we would have to um, take it that the development of the image occurs after each exposure, but then um, each, so each image is sort of formed, um, uh, you know, as a whole, it doesn't like average with the other images, but then that image is constantly evolving over time. Um, so our, our sort of symbolic um, cognition of objects is not fixed. We don't form like a fixed symbol um, that uh, that would be sort of maintained through the rest of our lifespan. We instead have, um, you know, anything that we can grasp symbolically is um, subject to further enrichment or further development over the course of our life history. Um, so again, we'll see more about um, what, you know, symbolic cognition consists in, in the next part or the next section of this part. Um, but um, I think if, if we think of something like our um, grasp of a person, a personality of a person who is close to us, a family member, a, a partner, a close friend or something like that, um, we, you know, we, we have like, um, I guess, a basic image of what that person is like. Like uh, you can sort of predict what a person, uh, if you know the person well, you can predict what they would do in a certain situation or you recognize certain um, habits or quirks or whatever of that person. So these are sort of basic images, but our sense of that person's personality is more than just sort of a list of um, traits or, a, you know, a, a set of predictions of how they would react in uh, a particular situation. We have a sort of total grasp of that person's personality. Um, and it's on the basis of that grasp of personality, um, which we could take to be a sort of symbolic cognition. Um, it's, it's on the basis of that, that we sort of um, you know, carry out our predictions of how they would react in different situations. Um, so yeah, I think um, maybe that example will help to um, um, clarify the what uh, what kind of symbolic cognition he's talking about here. Because and again, our, our knowledge of a person's personality is something that isn't fixed, um, but it evolves over time. Um, you know, the person uh, their personality changes, and uh, in particular, our relationship with that person. Has sort of feeds back into their personality, and and you know their uh, that person will evolve over time in relation to me, um, and and then also you know as we live with a person or you know go through uh, experiences together with that person, we come to know them in a deeper or or more uh, full sense than we did before. So um, this symbolic cognition is constantly evolving over the life of a person, and, and it's not something fixed. It seems like the these intense experiences that he says give rise to, uh, I guess, like determinative aspects of the symbol image. Um, so they have to arise from a tense uh, system of subject and milieu, but he says that they're also sort of refractory of the um, initial experience. So they sort of encode it and distort it at the same time. And, uh, at least that's my understanding of the second part of this first paragraph is that um, it it's difficult for the subject to 
get back to maybe because of the contradictory nature of this symbol image to um, get back to any one of the impressions and kind of see it for what it is. Yeah, I think like again, if we if we think of the, the example of like a person knowing a person, um, you know, a partner or a, a family member or something, um, uh, are like again, if you if you if someone asks you like what is a person this person's personality or like how would you describe this person, you might list like a few sort of traits of that person, um, uh, you know, habits or or things like that, but that sort of list of traits is is nowhere doesn't come close to exhausting the um um you know the the concept or the symbol that you have of that person's personality um and it's something that's very difficult to put into words like um uh, and this and you know this is why being a, a novelist or a poet or something like that is a very difficult um or you know, a good one of course is very difficult like someone who is able to use in a few words sort of um depict a personality and, and make that person seem sort of living to the reader uh that's a, a skill that is very difficult to um to acquire uh and so most of us if if we're asked to describe you know what is your partner's personality what is your what is your parents personality etc we have like you know a few sort of um stock phrases or a few you know we, we might describe a few different habits that they have but it's uh, it's a very poor approximation to the the symbolic concept um um or the symbolic cognition of that person, I guess you could say. Uh, and so these like um, intense experiences that you have, you know, going through life with a person, um, you um, you might sort of think back to those experiences uh, years later and sort of discover a different aspect that you never noticed before of that situation. You might uh, you know realize that this person was. Um, acting acting in a different way than you thought they were at the time or or you know that you know uh their actions sort of sort of shed light on their personality in a way that you hadn't realized before etc so you can always sort of go back to those experiences and learn more from them than you sort of noticed uh originally so it's it's not these experiences are not sort of transparent to consciousness to our um uh experience of ourselves and of of the world we can't just sort of um read off from the experience what properties this person has we have to uh you know think over it and you know live through our recollection of those experiences to you know get more and more out of it but we can never exact you know, like fully exhaust that um experience yeah maybe I'm, I'm thinking ahead to the uh section where he'll talk about lacan but uh, i wonder if he has something like a psychoanalytic approach to the attempt to understand the symbol image in mind. I mean, he is obviously talking about like uh, psychoanalytic themes such as the, the bad mother or the uh, sort of original or primitive good mother already. Um, but that may be one way uh, to, you know, uh, one, one way to think of the refractory nature of the uh, symbol image is that, these sort of constitutive events um, and, you know, memories of people that we have are not immediately apparent to us and sort of need to be worked through carefully in order to understand uh, what they were. Yeah, I think I think he's definitely thinking of psychoanalysis when he's writing this bit. Um, um, I think, though, he has a sort of ambiguous relationship to psychoanalysis. We, we saw this in Individuation, um, where he... he 
sort of wants to substitute for the con the concept of the unconscious this um notion of the subconscious um um and he he um yeah he had some critical comments about freud um uh, and then he in other places he seems to be more he seems to be more interested in jung than in freud um um so yeah his his relationship to psychoanalysis i think is a complicated one um that uh i'm not sure i haven't seen any secondary literature like on that specific topic so that would be an interesting project if anyone is interested in pursuing that um but um yeah i think what he's at least um taking from psychoanalysis here is this idea that um yeah that you have to sort of work through an experience um that uh these sort of key experiences in your life uh the, these formation of symbols um are not transparent to us and that we have to work through and um it, you know it takes it takes work and a, a sort of process and experience to actually um grasp what has happened to us and what we've gone through and and what we've experienced uh and that, so i think that's sort of the the core idea that he's taking from psychoanalysis here but he's giving it um a very different spin of course than like freud might have uh and we'll see his comments on lacan later on as well Okay. Uh, do we have a volunteer to read this last paragraph of the of the section? Uh, okay. If not, then I can read it. Okay. I'll read this one, and then uh, we can uh, uh, hopefully someone else can uh, jump in for the following uh, section. Okay. Lastly, the totalizing process described by Ten Huxley Ribot may exist within the progressive constitution of the image as it progresses towards the state of symbol. After the main dichotomies have taken place, experiences that are homogeneous in relation to each other within one of the dichotomies' paths may overlap and thus partially erase their historical individuality. The list of a person's good deeds on the one hand and bad deeds on the other opens the register of two separate generic totalizing images. If good and bad deeds interfered in a single regime, they would erase each other. Yet the image of a person with a long list of good deeds and an equally long list of bad deeds is not at all the same as that of a person that does neither bad nor good and remains perpetually neutral. In order for totalizing to occur, previous dichotomies constituting the classes of totalization must have taken place in a more implicit and primitive mode of memory, which corresponds to imprinting. The processes described by empirical theories correspond to partial memories. The image is anterior to the distribution of tasks among these partial memories. In the course of experience, the progressive transition from image to symbol happens through the interactions of these partial memories. The image is anterior to partial empiricisms and is developed by going further than their results. Um, yeah, so this, again, is part of the transition from uh, the memory image to the symbol. Um, but uh, Simon Dong gives an argument here against the, the idea that um, this uh, empiricist conception of image formation as a sort of summation or averaging um, is sort of sufficient to account for our images. And, and so he uses this uh, person example that I was uh, trying to develop uh, a little bit earlier. Um, so he says, if you take a person who has done a bunch of good things and a bunch of bad things and and if we took it that um these different actions sort of um summed up against each other they would just sort of cancel each other out and this person would be the same as a person who had done nothing sort of notable uh, either good or bad um uh but this doesn't really seem to be correct um i think we are capable of recognizing you know uh a person who has done notably good and, and notably bad things as distinct from a person who has done nothing notable at all. We, um, um, yeah, so um, we, we sort of make a distinction between these two types of cases, um, which doesn't seem to be, doesn't, it's hard to explain how we make this distinction um, uh, using the purely empiricist, um, you know, approach to concept formation. 
so what Simon Dom argues here is that this image formation uh, is prior to this this sort of summation process, and the summation process is a sort of partial image formation. Um, um, these are partial memories, so we only we we might have um, a partial memory of a person. We have a, a memory of um, the good deeds that um, a person did, and then we have a different memory of the bad deeds that the person did. Um, and these are sort of partial memories, uh, but the uh, image of the person as a whole this is a sort of symbol that is prior to either the good deeds or the bad deeds. Uh, and, and that's how we sort of distinguish between this person who has done uh, lots of good and lots of bad, and then the other person who has done nothing notable either, either way. Um, so, yeah, this is um, sort of the transition to the symbol is, is recognizing that a purely empiricist account of concept formation has a hard time accounting for um, the sort of non-neutralization of good versus bad or, you know, different qualities um, that, uh, that a person might have. Uh, Angus, do you want to explain this uh, Buddhist concept that you put in the chat here? Yeah, I was just thinking, I think I saw like a statue of this character um, in a museum uh, and the description stuck with me, but it was a sort of a ruthless highwayman who converted to Buddhism and became uh, became like a, you know, holy man. But that seemed like a good example of of the kind of image that can't be understood in terms of like the averaging of good and bad deeds because there's something striking about the transformation that's not you know it's if you just like add the good stuff and subtract the bad stuff it would be kind of an average life which is not really what it is right yeah that's, that's a good example um and and maybe we can connect this with um the concept of conversion that that he talked about in uh individuation um and then again in history of the individual or history of the notion of the individual um this concept that, um, um, yeah, there, that you in the process of individuation uh, of a, a, a psychic individuation, um, you know, the, the process through which you become the person that you are. Um, there's, uh, you know, these sort of key moments of conversion um, that are sort of irreversible, um, uh, and sort of these um, discrete moments of individuation, as opposed to the sort of continuous development. Um, and uh, yeah, so this, I think, this personality is, is a kind of uh, indication that we don't form our concepts just by summation or averaging. Uh, um, it's, uh, yeah, there, there has to be something, uh, another principle of uh, concept formation distinct from this sort of purely um, uh, summative uh, concept formation that the empiricist conception focuses on. Okay, so let's go on to the next section on uh, where we talk about the symbol specifically. Um, so let's see uh, if I can get a volunteer to read. Um, yeah, up to the um, subsection heading, I think, up to where it says subsection one. Um, let's start with that. Uh, if I can get a volunteer. I can read again if nobody else can. <clears throat> sure. Um, section C, the imaginary is organized world, effigies and symbol objects. The memory image in the perspective sketched above may then have the properties of a generic image, even of several generic images in a relation of interaction, without having to constitute the source of information as a plurality of individuals of a given class. It may be an individual, a plurality of individuals making up a family, an ethnic group, or a nation. This is why 
the development of the image towards the symbol operates in the same way, whether the image is of a single person or a group. Knowledge through the image melds the individual and the group. The image of the English, of the American, or the Italian for a given individual has a mental content analogous to the image of a person. The generic dimension of the image's reach disappears once the image is constituted. Hence, knowledge according to images gives rise to the possible substitution of an individual by another as a substrate for responsibility, hostages, etc. The tendency of the symbol to develop through action reveals the internal tension contained in a grouping of divergent characteristics. But this action may either express itself directly without an intermediary construction through attitudes and conducts, or use the body as an intermediary object, imitation, expressive mimicry, or else recruit or even construct new objects as analogs of the reality represented by the image. Yeah, I'm not sure what he's saying in that first paragraph, other than that the symbol image can be a symbol image of uh, groups of people as opposed to individuals of sort of various levels of abstraction. Uh, yeah, so I think in that first bit, he's talking about the memory image. So he's he's sort of introducing the symbol image by contrast with what we've seen before. Um, and so what um, what he's talking about here is the way that a memory image, um, so your your image of a person, your memory image of a person, and your memory image of, say, an ethnic group or whatever, um, are, are formed in the same way through, the, like, this sort of summation or averaging process, um, this quasi-physical process uh, of just sort of assembling images and uh, abstracting away from the details. Uh, and so here, so he, he, you know, suggests here that it doesn't really matter whether you're talking about um, your image of your memory image of a person, an individual person, or your memory image of a group of people. Um, you, you sort of form these like stereotype images in the same way. Um, it's It's the same sort of uh, process of concept formation either way or image formation um and yeah the, this interesting bit here that he he just puts it sort of in a parenthesis but it, when he talks about um um hostages uh and and so here i think maybe what he's thinking of is this notion of collective punishment um which is uh you know recognized as a war crime where you have um you know country a or you know army a um um attacks the people of army that you know belong to the same ethnic group or the same nation as uh, army b and uh you know they punish the civilian population for something that um uh the army or um uh um you know an armed group of some kind that comes from that population has has done um um so yeah here because there's this sort of um you know, you're operating using these sorts of um, stereotype memory images. So one person from ethnic group A is just as good as any other person from ethnic group A in terms of like punishing someone for the the supposed crime that they they've committed. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of a an interesting uh, application of this concept of a memory image um, that we we can sort of substitute someone from uh, a particular group. As uh, as you know, responsible for uh, some action that another person in that group might have committed, uh, and then this last paragraph just sort of leading into the um, leading into the uh, next subsection um, is pretty obscure. I'm not sure exactly what he's talking about here, but um, so he he talks about this internal tension, um, um, and so I think what he what he's thinking of here is is you know when you do form these images of you know a stereotype image of a group. 
um, you of course are leaving out all kinds of other aspects. Um, if you have a stereotype of you know Italians are are like X or whatever, um, you are sort of leaving out all kinds of other properties of Italians who may not be like X or that have other properties that are contradictory with uh, you know with each other and so on. Um, and so there's the sort of tension um, that sort of pushes towards a formation of a symbol as something more uh, as a richer um, image than this memory image that just sort of abstracts away from the details. Um, so I think maybe that's what he has in mind. Um, but then he he suggests here, and I think we'll see more on this as we keep reading this part uh, or this section, um, that this formation of a symbol has to do with action in some uh, in some sort of intrinsic way. So it's it's not just that we form a symbol in our minds and sort of contemplate this symbol passively. Um, the symbol formation um, process has this sort of intrinsic drive to express itself. You know, that could be in, in the formation of an art object, for example, um, uh, um, or it could be, um, you know, performing an action in practical life um, of some kind. But uh, in general, there, there's a, a, a sort of um, expression of the symbol through action or symbol formation is something that is um, active as opposed to uh, contemplative. Um, so I think we'll see more on what exactly that means um, as we go through the rest of this uh, section. Okay. Uh, do we have any volunteers to read um, the next page or so of this uh, of this subsection? Uh, okay, so I'll go for this one. Uh, seems like it's just the two of us who are reading today. That's yeah. okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll read this bit. Um, okay, uh, subsection one. The notion of the imago, in what way the imago is a symbol. For Lacan, imago is the name given to a paradoxical entity, an unconscious representation that lies below the complex and the complex and constitutes one of the organizers of psychic development, volume 8 of the Encyclopédie Française. The imago organizes images and thoughts. It accounts for attitudes displaying the nexus of contradictory forces any complex is made of, and is thus the basis of certain structures in which the complex is a concrete factor. That is, for example, and especially, the imago of the maternal breast which is at the basis of the weaning complex. The original situation of the child is a relation of extreme dependency on the mother. Weaning corresponds to the birth of autonomy, bringing new satisfactions, but also a loss of security and the satisfactions linked to dependency. To echo expressions used above, we might say that a, a dichotomy occurs when the possibility of autonomy comes to be grafted onto the primitive relation to the mother. So long as the possibility of autonomy remains symmetrical, occasional, and truly marginal with respect to the relation to the mother, does not create an imago. The imago is produced as a figure of tensed equilibrium, which, revisiting the absolutely primary character of the relation to the mother, places that relation on the same plane and at the same level as independence. The imago is a figure of equilibrium that renders independence and the relation to the mother symmetrical by transforming their relation after the fact, by reconsidering their relation as a dependency now felt as a, uh, uh, now felt as a threat, and with the danger of absorption, return to intrauterine existence. The unconscious representation that is the imago of the maternal breast corresponds to the simultaneous duality of the narrow reaction to the uh, narrow relation to the mother as object of aspiration, and of the wish for emancipation corresponding to the personal development of the child. The tense simultaneity of this divergent pair of aspirations is symbolically expressed in a death wish linked to precocious forms of ties with others. The mother is represented as the kind of resting place of nirvana, of a renunciation of separated individuality. See Ms. Favet-Boutanier's course on l'imagination, pages 88 to 89. 
the imago thus brings together in a tense and symmetrical equilibrium two situations which, in fact, manifested themselves in succession in their full expression and in an asymmetrical way. The imago is a symbol because it refers to a reality other than that of the ego, and it is able to refer to the other reality because instead of summarizing and linearly condensing successive experiences, it concretizes and condenses them into a paradoxical entity that is the disclosure within the ego of the real relation with others as a source of alterity. The symbol induces thoughts, images, and attitudes that reach others in an ambivalent way. The duality or ambivalence of the imago expresses the real duality of the other and the subject because it summarizes the changes of situation triggered by the development of the subject in its relationship to a single person. The maternal imago is the union of, in a simultaneous couple of the two successive perspectives of the relation to the mother from the point of view of the child. The imago is a symbol because it points back to the object through the whole gamut of its possible manifestations containing, uh, with, contained within the extreme terms of the imago. Here, the mother as source of subsistence and the mother as annihilation of the child's individuality. The imago as a tension between these extreme terms virtually contains the spectrum of all possible situations with respect to a given person. It is in advance the exhaustive summary of concrete relations and thus represents a mode of access to symbolized reality on the part of the subject. The imago is not merely the, the summary of what is experienced. It marks the beginning of reversibility toward action. Right, so this is, um, I think, a little bit difficult to understand exactly what's going on here. Um, um, I guess sort of the basic idea is that in the relation to the mother, the child goes through um, two distinct stages in, in, in the weaning complex, as he calls it here. So the, um, there's the um, breastfeeding stage that, where the child is sort of um, united with the mother and uh, experiences this union with the mother as, uh, uh, as pleasurable. Uh, and then after separation, there's um, um, this sort of... Um, valorization of independence instead um of course there's a sort of transition period where um you know the mother's refusal um to breastfeed is sort of experienced as a as a punishment or as a, a sort of um bad mother who uh is refusing to um to you know provide uh what the child needs um but then uh after this weaning has occurred the sort of prior um, experience of the mother of the union with the mother is now experienced as a kind of um, uh, aggression as a kind of um, consumption of the child by the mother uh, so this sort of what was before uh, an experience of pleasurable um, uh, connection to the mother and union with the mother is now experienced as a sort of hostile um, threatening uh, experience a kind of threatening um, uh, image of the mother as, uh, you know, uh, aggressive and uh, threatening to consume the child. Uh, and so the uh, the imago, this sort of image that forms after the weaning process, combines these two contradictory images of the mother into one, uh, so in one sort of symbol. And so again, this is, um, you know, this process of forming a symbol out of a contradictory situation that he described in the previous bit that we just read. Um, so again, this this is sort of um, um, yeah a kind of uh, process of uh, forming this contradictory image, and and here he's um, borrowing the psychoanalytic term imago as uh, um, uh, you know to to describe this image that uh, refers to these two contradictory aspects of the mother. Yeah, I don't really know very much about Lacan, um, but it's interesting that the the symbol of the Imago is uh, sort of anticipates all uh, 
relation with other people so that he says that the uh the imago is tension between these extreme terms <clears throat> of i guess these two aspects of the mother contains the spectrum of all possible situations with respect to a given person i assume that means just other people in general so it's sort of like any interaction that you'll have with other people or anticipation of interactions will fall somewhere between these uh, two extremes formed by this, you know, the initial relation with the mother as kind of the first other person. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, again, this is, like this is sort of a typical um, Simondon kind of move here where he's, he's setting up a, a sort of spectrum um, with these two poles. Um, so we have these two images of the mother at the poles of, of this uh, tension. And then every other sort of um, uh, relation to a person is going to fit somewhere in between those two poles. Uh, and so, the, yeah, I think that's what's going on here. Uh, so this relation to the mother is sort of um, sets up the, uh, the child's relationships to other uh, people throughout his life uh, insofar as those relationships will find a, a position somewhere on, along this spectrum with the two images of the mother at, the, at each pole. I was a little bit surprised that Simon Don was reading Lacan. It doesn't really seem like his... Uh, I mean, I guess it's not surprising in the sense that Simon Don seemed kind of interested in everything, but um, he certainly seems more kind of, um, I don't know, science-oriented, I guess, and as you noted earlier, not particularly sympathetic to psychoanalysis. Yeah, I think this might be the only explicit reference to Lacan in... Simon Don. Um, I'm not 100% sure of that, but um, yeah, I think, I mean, Lacan was fairly well known um, at the time. Uh, you know, his, uh, so this is, um, you know, written simultaneously with uh, Lacan's seminars um, that are, you know, now published and translated um, in, the, in the late 50s, early 60s. Um, so yeah, Lacan was already well known. You know, these seminars were sort of famous in the Parisian intellectual scene. Um, uh, so, yeah, it makes sense that Simon Don would have had some awareness of, you know, what Lacan was doing. Um, but, um, yeah, it is, I mean, there's definitely a big intellectual divergence between the two in terms of, like, how they approach, uh, you know, working through a problem and, you know, presenting their work and so on, um, the, what sort of sources they use and and, you know, pretty much everything about them is is sort of uh, um, opposed to each other, I think. Uh, uh, so yeah, th it is somewhat surprising. Uh, and then he, it's also somewhat surprising here that he seems to be um, largely um, positive about Lacan's work here. He doesn't have, um, yeah, he, he doesn't have a lot to say in uh, uh, sort of criticism of Lacan or of psychoanalysis in this bit, but then he's going to go on to talk about um, more sort of mythological um, symbols that are, you know, uh, more uh, Jungian in, in form than, um, than sort of uh, classical Freudian psychoanalysis. Uh, so, yeah, again, it's this weird sort of ambiguous relationship with psychoanalysis where he's obviously interested in what, uh, what psychoanalysts have to say, but he's, um, uh, I think, maybe hesitant to sort of uh, accept fully what uh, what psychoanalysis is doing, um, but yeah, it's it's a 
an interesting topic that I have not really like looked into in a lot of detail. Okay, so let's go on to the next page. Um, seems like uh, Angus, uh, you're you're up. It's, uh, it's just us so far that have been reading. Yes, uh, no problem. Unless somebody else wants to jump in and read. Okay, I'll go ahead. Um, okay, sorry, we're at the bottom of one twenty eight. Uh, the top of one twenty eight. Top of one twenty eight. Okay. Lacan cites other complexes in their corresponding imago. The alter ego corresponds to the complex of intrusion, which is at once a highly attractive replica of the ego and a rival. And then there is the Oedipus complex. In Lacan's view, there is a difference between the image and the symbol, the latter appearing at the level of complexes where we find three terms. The latter, okay, uh, the Oedipus complex, whereas images express the duality of persons. However, even if we must admit that the reality of the symbol is more complex than that of the image, the imago as organizer is already an elementary symbol since it contains in, represent, since it contains in representation, whether conscious or non-conscious, a gamut of possibilities rendering it capable of corresponding to all real situations of a relationship to a reality, the mother, the intruder, etc., Thanks to the duality of extreme terms, the imago deploys a wide spectrum of possible relations marked by situations actually experienced. The imago is a symbol because it allows the passage from the discontinuous spectrum of ahistorical experience to the continuous spectrum of possibilities contained between antithetical extreme terms. Um, it convinces and reorders experience to make it into a universal mode of access to a given reality. It formalizes the random series of imprints. Yet there does not appear to be a difference in nature between a primary type of formalization, such as that of the spectrum of qualities and attitudes between the two opposite extreme terms, such as life and death, dependence and autonomy. And a more formal, sorry, a more complex formalization mobilizing a ternary structure, such as that of the Oedipus complex. A binary formalization simply opens up a wider set for the interpretation of experience than a ternary formalization. Uh, the binary mode corresponds to the temporal succession of the heterogeneity of attitudes and relations within a changing situation, while the ternary formalization implies an objective simultaneity and a plurality in the field of objects. For instance, mother and father are simultaneously present in relation to the child and to each other as a couple while individually relating to the child. The more elementary a formalization, the more experiences it can host. The bipolar relation between life and death envelops everything, can contain everything, since it sets the extreme terms of experience. Uh, maybe I'll stop there. The next paragraph's pretty long. So, it seems like, okay, the difference between an image and a symbol for Lacan is that the image has two terms, whereas a symbol has three terms. And so I guess the Oedipus complex is paradigmatic for the symbol because obviously there are three terms in the Oedipus complex. Um, but Simon Don wants to argue that the fact that an image has only two terms actually gives it a wider range of possible deployment because if these two terms are like contradictory extremes, then, you know, obviously, uh, like by the principle of non-contradiction, they would kind of cover everything. Like either a person is a good person or they are 
not a good person or either person is an, an intruder or not an intruder. Um, I don't really understand how it seems like both of these kinds of both the image and the symbol can be symbols in Simon Don's sense. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, so I, I just said that Simon Don doesn't seem to criticize Lacan, but here he is, I think, making uh, at least a, a modification of Lacan's uh, terminology. Um, so he wants to, so where Lacan distinguishes between um, an image uh, and a symbol, uh, as you pointed out, in terms of the number of terms that go into you know, constructing this uh, mental formation, um, Simon Don wants to say that there's a continuity from one to the other, and so we should use the term symbol um, to cover images in Lacan's sense and symbols in Lacan's sense. Um, so we shouldn't um, make some sort of uh, distinction of kind between these uh, two-term images and then the three-term symbols. We should see them as continuous with each other. Uh, so it's a, a sort of difference of complexity, um, uh, and then that complexity uh, sort of has the uh, result of um, restricting the number of situations that fall under that symbol. So something, uh, this binary opposition like life and death is something you can sort of um, apply to pretty much any situation. So you can think, for example, of like the yin and yang opposition, which sort of covers every possible pair of opposites um, that, uh, um, you know, the, the, the sort of two principles are... Um, are, are sort of universal oppositions. Uh, and so I think these sorts of binary oppositions for Simon Don are, um, because of their simplicity, they can apply to pretty much any situation. Whereas these more complex ones, like the Oedipus complex, that have three or maybe more terms uh, in other situa other you know, uh, symbols, um, because they're more complex, it means that fewer situations will fall under them uh, or will, will be applicable um, or th this symbol will be applicable to fewer situations. Uh, so, yeah, that's partly, I think, just a, a terminology question of, like, whether you want to use the symbol for the more restricted case where there's three or more terms, or you want to use the symbol for all cases, including the ones that have only two terms. Um, but I think maybe more, um, more importantly than just terminology, the question is whether there's a sort of continuity from the two-term case to three-term case, or whether there's a a sort of qualitative difference between these two cases. Um, and so Simon Do says there's a, a continuity, whereas Lacan holds that there's a, a qualitative distinction. Um, so, yeah, I think that's more or less what the argument of this paragraph is. Um, um, yeah, so it's, I mean, it's not, again, it's, it's a little bit difficult because um, I don't actually know this article of, of Lacan that he's working with here from the encyclopedia. Um, so I'm, I'm not 100% sure. Um, you know, what, what arguments of Lacan he's opposing here. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's what's going on in this, uh, in this bit is a, a terminology distinction from Lacan that sort of, um, follows from this difference in terms of continuity versus discontinuity between the simple and the complex cases of, of symbolization. Okay. Uh, let's go on to the next bit. Um, I can read. Of course, it might seem odd to consider primary modes of thought as formalizations. However, we are indeed dealing with a formalization when it is a question of the images and symbols that make up the common background of a culture, especially from the perspective of Mircea Eliade's work. He roughly reprises Jung's idea of the archetype as a schema of the imagination, a mold for images belonging to humanity's past, perhaps even pre-human stages in the becoming of the species. 
For Iliad, the, the symbol is foremost religious, while images refer to individual existence. Such a distinction all but amounts to saying that images are more primitive than symbols. Symbols formalizing certain kinds of imprints involving not only the formalization of the variations of the relation to others along a continuous spectrum, but the actual presence of a tertium quid, the father, the law, so society, nature, etc., which cannot be formalized by the simple polarity of a continuous qualitative spectrum, but requires at least a ternary structure. Indeed, ternary structures allow individuals of the same group to communicate, since they formalize the interactive experience and provide a terrain of universality corresponding to an intellectualized, adult, vigilant, conscious expression. But binary structures al uh, also allow communication according to less universally collective modalities, less well inserted into the action of the group, and applying a lower degree of vigilance. Fairy tales and myths sometimes display binary structures, the ogress, the stepmother, wealth and poverty, pride and humility, the oscillations of a nemesis. Finally, within a given culture, there is a certain linkage that connects individual binary structures to ternary structures that presuppose the presence of society, law, or divinity. This is the case in particular of individual salvation in a religion. The dichotomy of an individual life and death is reframed within a supernatural context where it is a question of everlasting life and death. The conversion of a binary into a ternary structure is made possible by an intermediary structure, sacred, profane, creature, creator, temporal, eternal. That is, one might say, a dual inlet. Since it is a dichotomy only at one of its extreme terms, that of the relation with the ego, but it participates in a more complex structure from the point of view of the privileged term, the sacred, the creator, the eternal, which is superior and anterior to the other. Such retrofitting structures are act equally as structures of conversion. Ethical religious actions of passage and of the transformation of the self, like sacrifice, can receive their formalization only through such conversion structures between binary and more complex forms. Um, yeah, let's... Actually, no, I'll go on and read the rest of this. Whatever it's reached then, the memory image can already receive a formalization, even when it concerns the sole individual or their very primitive relation to the parent. It might be better to speak of a binary symbol or a ternary symbol rather than of an image in the former case and symbol in the latter. For there is a symbol as soon as there is a formalization of imprints. If binary symbols were not formed, would it even be possible to acquire the ternary symbols allowing communication with others in a universal mode? The world of the individual imaginary pre prepares access to the register usually called symbolic. The individual imaginary reflects the universal conditions of existence since it expresses life and death, health and sickness, joy and sadness, pleasure and pain. The register of the individual is binary, yet it includes a formalization of experiences, a symmetrization of imprints, and thereby a symbolic power. In the imaginary, Sartre denies any distinction between the imaginary and the symbolic function. They are both forms of unreflective thought, aiming at the possession of the object. While Sartre's definition of the imaging consciousness is debatable, his interpretation is extremely interesting because it emphasizes a relation of existence and of action between the object and the subject, one woven in images and symbols rather than, as in most other doctrines, including Husserl's, relations of signification which, to a greater or lesser degree, associate images and symbols with signs. Finally, we should point out the theory of Piaget, who, in La Formation du Symbole chez l'Enfant, connects the distinction between image and symbol to his distinction between functions of, of accommodation and functions of assimilation. Yet there already exists in the image a constructive activity which entails that it is not simply an extension of perception. Quote, the pure image, l'image simple, is an interiorized imitation of the object it relates to, just as an exterior imitation is a direct copy of the model by means of the subject's own body or of actions that result in a material reproduction of the, of the model, drawing or construction, end quote. The distinction between simple image and symbol corresponds to access at the level of representation. When images let affective correspondence be established among them, the passage to the symbolic level takes place. Play, in particular, uses symbols that manifest affectivity, intentions or desires. Later, symbols stabilized by conventions, especially language, 
affect a transition towards concepts. The specificity of the symbolic function lies in the connection between signifiers and signifieds. According to Piaget, this function only truly appears at the stage when play allows for the assimilation of the real into the ego, as dreams do, and bestows signification. Piaget's theory, while maintaining the, the distinction between image and symbol within a genetic perspective, does not exclude the possibility of forms of transition between image and symbol, images being more primitive than symbols. What we would like to say is that a truly implicit formalization of images takes place according to the simplest dimensions corresponding to individual life, that is, in the form of a continuous spectrum of the binary type that permits correspondences. Such a formalization already bestows on images a symbolic signification and reach. Right, so he's again here talking about this continuity between um, the binary case and the ternary case. Um, so he's talking about these various authors, uh, Iliad, Piaget, um, who make an opposition between the binary and the ternary case. And he uh, is instead opting for Sartre's argument that, um, that the binary and ternary cases are continuous with each other. Um, and um, yeah, he, he takes it that um, this, uh, what he calls here the individual imaginary, so this um, binary, this set of binary oppositions in which the individual operates is, um, is sort of the preliminary stage of the symbolic or is part of, is the sort of most basic form of the symbolic. Um, that we we have to uh, recognize a, a continuity between the binary and the ternary cases because um, the one sort of passes into the other. Uh, so he gives this sort of complicated, and I, I don't entirely understand this um, explanation in, in relation to Eliad's um, uh, you know uh, talk about symbols in uh, folk tales and legends and myths and so on. Um, that there's a sort of relationship between a binary and a ternary structure. Um, so I'm not sure exactly how that works because I don't know Iliad's work at all. But um, yeah, in general, he's he's um, um, pointing to a continuity uh, between binary and ternary uh, forms of symbol symbolization. And he again makes use of this notion of conversion here in uh, on page 129. Uh, so this, I think, sort of confirms what uh, we were talking about earlier with this Buddhist... Um, personality who can you know undergoes this conversion process um so yeah i think conversion is a an important point to keep in mind here this idea of a uh, you know conversion is of course a binary concept you, you you start off in one state and then you end up in a different state um, that's opposed to the first one um but it's uh it sort of acquires its um force by connecting with more complicated concepts that you, you're not just converting from a to b you're you know, converting into a, a whole system, a whole network of concepts and images and symbols that forms, say, a religious tradition. Um, like when you become Christian or you become Buddhist or whatever, you are um, uh, converting, you're, you're sort of turning into, you're, you're inserting yourself into this complicated network of symbols that pre-exists your conversion process. Maybe it's, it's he seems to say a couple of times that the these binary structures are there's like a continuity between the two poles of the of the binary and maybe in the ternary structure it's the discontinuity between the terms that requires the third term so they need to be like equal or um convertible in something else like in a, a larger set that allows them allows you to change from one to the other as opposed to the binary term that uh because of its continuity uh, needs no um, like overarching set. Um, yeah, I think I think that's mm, partly right. I think there's 
maybe one point I would uh, so yeah I'll start with what I think is is right about that. Um, I think um, I think you're right to point to this uh, this difference between the the binary and the ternary um, processes. The binary one, uh, as you said, he he described it in terms of a continuity, so this sort of spectrum, uh, like the good mother and the bad mother, and then all our relationships to other people, uh, sort of our uh, position somewhere on the spectrum between the good mother and the bad mother. Um, so yeah, that's that's the the first part, um, and then the second part that I think is maybe how I would put it is that um, it's not that the the third term in the ternary case sort of encompasses the two terms, um, but it's that um, the relationship because you have this more complicated uh, ternary relationship, you have you know term A's relationship to term B and term A's relationship to term C, and then term uh, term B and C's relationship to each other. Um, uh, so you have, uh, you know, all the different binary relations, um, all sort of, uh, interacting with each other. Um, because of this, it allows for, um, uh, a certain stability is, is how Simonon describes it. Um, you, you, it, uh, uh, universality in the sense that, um, you, because you have a, a certain uh, a sort of external reference point, this third term serves as a sort of external reference point um, that you can share with another person. Whereas this uh, binary opposition of life and death, or good mother and bad mother, is sort of individual um, and and less shareable. Um, so uh, yeah, this um, ternary structure allows for universalizability or uh, shareability, at least with other people in a way that the binary uh, opposition does not. Uh, I think that's sort of how he sees this um, difference between the uh, binary and, and ternary cases. Uh, but again, he, he wants to see this as a, a continuity from one to the other. So it's not, uh, it's not a qualitative distinction. It's a, a sort of difference in degree of complexity from one to the other. And, and sort of the consequence of this complexity is this shareability. Um, between individuals um, that that allows for so something like a myth that can be um, common to not it's not just one person's sort of individual conception of life and death but it's a it's a, a collective representation of you know how life and death work and what relation they have to life after death for example or eternal life um, uh, so yeah the, I think that's where he sees this difference between the turn the binary and the ternary cases arising. I wonder how the uh, I don't really have a coherent way to put this, but I wonder how the the relation between the continuous terms and the binary image is related to the comments that he makes about the indefinite dyad in individuation volume one. Um, maybe one way to think about it is the you know one of the <clears throat> definitions of transduction is like the example of color vision where uh, a color is understood in its relation to the, I can't remember if it's the most intense or the, uh, I think it's the most intense color, which I think was yellow green, but maybe um, in the example of the Imago from Lacan, there's a similar sort of transductive placement of like encounters with uh, others in day-to-day -day life on this, I guess, good mother, bad mother spectrum um, that constitutes the binary symbol image. 
Yeah, I think yeah, definitely related to this notion of a, a transductive spectrum, and and so yeah, there's that bit where he talks about um, yellow green light as like uh, if I remember correctly, it's the it's the frequency band that humans um, can distinguish most easily um, uh, is, is that sort of middle of the spectrum, the yellow green light, um, um, and then uh, the whole spectrum is sort of uh, splits out of that middle point. And this is sort of the typical Simondon move where you start from the middle and then split the two opposed poles out of it. Um, this is maybe slightly different in that we aren't starting from a sort of average mother and then um, splitting and finding a good and bad mother as two opposed poles. Um, we were instead, we have the, the two images of the good mother and the bad mother as uh, the two poles of the, of the spectrum. Uh, and then all, all of our other relationships are sort of finding uh, a position somewhere in that spectrum. Um, um, so yeah, I wonder, I don't know if maybe he sees the good and bad mother as arising out of a, not an average mother, but like a, a more uh, fundamental image of the mother that would be neither good nor bad, um, but out of which good and bad would arise. Um, um, I'm not sure if he sort of makes that move here, but that would be sort of what we would expect. Um, but yeah, and then um, this role of the um, ternary or the third term in the ternary process, uh, I think we can maybe connect this to the um, disparation uh, example in individuation volume one. Um, <clears throat> so like, we have this opposition or this tension between the two opposed retinal images and our uh, our way of sort of reconciling these two opposed images or these uh, images in tension with each other is by introducing a third term, which is the depth, uh, our perception of depth. Um, and uh, so, uh, again, I think um, this process of symbolization, we should see it as a, a sort of um, development out of this primitive or uh, original tension uh, between the two terms of the binary um, opposition uh, and then the, tur <clears throat> the ternary um, structure would arise out of this binary structure through this sort of tension resolution process uh, comparable to a, a sort of invention. And we'll see more about invention in the next part of the book. It kind of reminds me of um, uh, Fichte's definition of the principle of sufficient reason. Uh, I can post it in the, in the chat. <clears throat> That no two things are, I should say, positive, I think, positive in opposition to each other unless they are equivalent in some third thing. And no two things are equivalent unless they're positive in opposition to some third thing. I don't, I guess it would be interesting to think about the kind of, uh, if there is a kind of lineage between this idea of a principle of equivalence in which two different things have to be posited and Simon Don's um, notion of disparation as individuation discovery of the dimension that contains the the uh, two terms out of which it's individuated yeah um hmm. it's hard to say because simon don almost never talks about fichte like there's a very brief mention or i think maybe uh, a couple paragraphs in uh, history of the notion of the individual um but um yeah i think in fichte i think this um third term this uh the third term in which the two opposite terms are equivalent is um is logically um poorer is logically thinner or um has less content than the two opposed terms so like um if you have two oppo opposed terms like steel and not steel um uh those two terms would be opposed to each other 
uh, in relation to a third term like metal in general, uh, and then not steel would be like all the other metals that are are you know not steel. Um, uh, like it, I think the the sort of point of the the logical point that Fichte is making here is that it doesn't really make sense to have a, a sort of opposition in general. Like if you just oppose steel and not steel, um, uh, you know, if if you include under not steel, like um, you know dogs and apples and the number four and like every other thing that is not steel then it, it's like a completely empty concept um so it's only insofar as you are opposing within a determinate um domain of existence that you can sort of um uh you know have a determinate concept of not steel um uh yes but then yeah in the, in the opposition between the i and the not i uh there's an absolute opposition and so yeah everything um uh everything all these other Oppositions are always relative oppositions that um, sort of follow from this absolute opposition. Um, yeah, and so um, I think in Simon Rowe's concept of uh, you know the the sort of invention or discovery of depth perception through overcoming disparation, I think one of the key ideas for him is that this invention is not uh, a sort of poorer, is not logically poorer or, or thinner than the um, the two images. There's nothing. Nothing is lost from when you pass from the uh, um, uh, the two retinal images to the united uh, depth perception. Um, you you sort of contain the the final results of the um, invention uh, contains all the same all the content that was already in the two retinal images uh, and and sort of unites it into a richer whole as opposed to like. Um, uh, sort of rising to a more general category like metal in general, um, in which steel and not steel would be opposed to each other. Um, so yeah, I think I think it's a sort of different logical move that Simon Noah is doing here. But I wonder if he, you know, is explicitly thinking of this as, um, uh, you know, in opposition to Fichte's uh, approach to, you know, understanding uh, these sort of oppositions and how they relate to a third term. It seems like. Um... For Simon Doan, often the you'll have these two extreme terms, as you've uh, noted, and then you know you'll find that there is something. Simon Doan will show that there is a kind of internal relation between them and a concept that underlies them. I wonder if maybe one way to think of the difference between, like, uh, um, I don't know if if we could say the difference between like the inductive thinking, which becomes less rich as it moves upwards and uh, Simon Don's discovery of a third term, which doesn't lose any richness is a difference between like an external relation and an internal relation between the terms. But um, I know that's a, a bit general and uh, I don't know, maybe just something that we can um, like keep in mind and see if, if there's anything that he says that, Shed slide on that. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, um, yeah, so for those who maybe don't know this uh, sort of concept of internal versus external relations, so this has to, has to do with um, uh, actually, I think we may have talked about this before, but um, the idea is that most relation, like if we take the relation being taller than, um, this is obviously a completely extrinsic um, relationship. Uh, there's nothing about uh, a, a particular person that. Um, there's nothing intrinsic about that person that determines whether that person is taller than another person. It's a completely, it's sort of um, uh, irrelevant to that person's being, um, whether they are happen to be taller than another person or not. Um, 
Whereas another type of relation, like maybe is the father of, you might think that that um, uh, relationship is not a, a, partic- a purely external relationship, and a purely sort of arbitrary relationship between person A and person B. You might think um, being the father of X is actually part of what makes you who you are uh, or your, your essence or your being, or whatever you want to call it. Um, so, uh, yeah, an, an internal relationship would be a, this, this kind of relationship that is constitutive of the entity that is uh, one of the terms of the relationship. Um, and, you know, we've seen throughout uh, individuation that Simone Don wants to um, have a conception of relation as having the status of being. And so this would be um, an internal relation uh, as opposed to an external one. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it probably does make sense to see his sort of move of, you know, finding this third term as, um, as itself a kind of internal relation between these terms, like an a internal logical relation between concepts. Uh, so as opposed to, um, yeah, an inductive approach that just sort of um, finds the uh, common, um, you know, the more general concept under which two concepts are subsumed, uh, this would, would be an external relationship between concepts um, and then the uh, sort of finding that middle term out of which the two concepts can be generated uh, in, in Simon Don's um, approach would be an internal relationship between concepts. Um, yeah, I think that's a, a helpful helpful um, way of conceiving of the difference between these two sort of uh, modes of reasoning. Uh, okay, so we're um, maybe a little bit early, but uh, we're at a section break here. So I'm going to suggest that we stop here for today and then pick up from subsection two next time, if that works for everyone. That sounds good to me. Okay, uh, so thanks for coming out. Um, I hope we can get a few more people to read next time because it's better for the recording, I think, to have more different people involved. But uh, yeah, thanks for attending. Thanks for um, your contributions and uh, hope to see everyone next week. Thanks, Don. See you next week.